Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Pajajski and I'm a material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together we are bringing you A Future Made, a brand new podcast by Heriot Watt University. In the series, we'll find out how pioneering research at Harriet Watts in the fields of science, business, technology, design and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. Today, we're talking about nature-based solutions and hearing from academics in the university's School of Energy, Geoscience, Infrastructure and Society. We'll speak to a civil engineer and professor of water management and the research director of the Dornock Environmental Enhancement Project. When you say oysters to many people, they think it's a rarity and a luxury good. And you you kind of lose sight of the fact that in the 1800s and the 1700s, we used to have huge oyster beds. It's mind-boggling how big they were. Plus, we'll chat to Harriet Watt alumni to hear where her experiences studying in this field has led her to in her career. So Anna, this week I have been learning all about nature-based solutions. So I've got lots to tell you about, but I was just wondering, do those words actually mean anything to you? I don't know for sure, but I would guess that it would be something to do with looking to nature for inspiration to find solutions for human problems. Something like that? Oh, you've been doing a bit of reading up, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a really interesting field. It's sort of about like socio-environmental solutions. Uh-huh. So it's looking at um, things that you can do that are going to help both people, communities, but also the planet. So it's any way that you would intervene in nature that's going to leave the natural world and biodiversity better off than when you started. Ah, okay, I see. Because yeah, in my field of material science we talk about biomimicry meaning kind of copying nature's solutions but what you're saying is that it's very much about integrating nature into new solutions so kind of involving natural sources a little bit more exactly so you're trying to like harness the power of nature and that could Mm. reduce greenhouse gas emissions or it could help us to like adapt to the impacts of climate change. So it's like sustainable management of resources Mm -hmm. and the use of nature for tackling these big challenges. You've got like sea level rise, flooding and extreme fire and desertification a bit. So we're going to focus specifically on hydro hazards and hydrological extremes, which is basically Mm -hmm. like floods and droughts. So we'll be chatting about that a little bit later. And then we're also going to have this like very real world example of a nature-based solution from this guy, William Sanderson. um, And he runs this partnership with Harriet Watt University and they've also got on board Glenn Morangi and the Marine Conservation Society. So that's all about oysters. We'll be chatting about that as well. So I've had quite a lot of fun learning about it. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I can't wait to find out more. Yeah, I was talking about Bill. So Bill William Sanderson, he worked as an applied scientist in government conservation before he became an academic. So he was he was really focused in this area of species conservation. Mm. And he got really obsessed with the idea that shellfish habitats can be these like biodiversity hotspots. And his real aim in his work is to leave environments with better biodiversity than when they started. I went down to meet Bill, um, wellies and all. He was doing some field work with his master's students. I am down at Wardy Bay, Granton Beach. I'm down here overlooking 
the Firth of Forth over to Fife. All right, so, so what is it that you're up to? Can you talk me through what's going on? We're looking for changes in the seaweeds. You're looking for changes in the, um, the animals that live amongst them as well. We've got um, a foreshore that's got a lot of um, coastal defences um, and we've got a sandy beach uh, and then as we look out towards the water of the Firth of Forth, out there would have been in the day uh, a huge oyster bed. How huge? Uh, about 20 miles long, about 6 miles wide from about just beyond New Haven over there and then all the way up to the bridges. A huge stretch, you know, practically looks like the horizon from where we're standing. Yes, enormous. Uh, and, and these houses and the communities that you see around the harbours here, uh, at one time about one in five people would have been involved in the oyster trade. Oh, you've got, you've got one there. What is it that you're holding? Uh, I'm holding an oyster shell that I just picked up off the beach here. So this is uh, one of the remnants of, of that once enormous oyster bed that stretched right across the Firth of Forth. Um, and this has got lots of lines in it, like a, like a tree, um, like the uh, rings you might see in a tree. Uh, so you can tell this is a very old oyster. Do you like eating oysters now, or does it sort of put you off the enjoyment of them, the fact that you study them so much? I do, but um, I prefer to see them out there in the wild if I possibly can. Oysters are really important because they create structures on the seabed with the shells that they grow. And that leads to enhanced biodiversity because there are lots of nooks and crannies for everything else to live in. But the really interesting function of the oysters is the, is the filtration that they do. So they, they, they filter the seawater. They take all the particles, the organics, the plankton out of the water, and they digest some of that, and then they, they poop out the rest onto the seabed. And that process of filtration is really important for water quality. That's so interesting to hear about the history of oysters and kind of the cultural importance of them as well. I had no idea. Yeah, oh, I mean, I've been like nerding out big time about this. <laughs> so there's this old um, cookery book from 1929 called The Scots Kitchen oh, yeah. by F.M. McNeil. And she's got like recipes for oysters stewed in their own juices, but there's these like beautiful poems in them as well. And I've been like researching the old oyster women, like the fish wives songs as well. Oh, yeah. Um, but like one of the really nice ones was this song from the Fishermen of the Forth. Uh -huh. And apparently they used to trail their dredging nets along. And Sir Walter Scott even wrote about this. And he said, the herring loves the merry moonlight. The mackerel loves the wine. But the oyster loves the dredging song, for he comes of gentle kind. So it's got this sort of mythical, almost folkloric aspect, but it's been fished completely to extinction almost, which is mad. 150 square kilometres, the biggest oyster bed in the world was in the Firth of Forth, and they were just absolutely, you know, plundering it. That is absolutely mad. I mean, you can understand why, right? If it's this, like, incredible resource, the best in the world, the biggest in the world... But what's the situation now if we'd plundered those beds? Where are we at today? Well, there's no native oysters in the Firth of Forth in that stretch anymore. No way. Yeah, there's none. Um, <gasps> but yeah, you were. it was interesting. You were talking about the, the importance it had on people and communities. Yeah. Bill was actually telling me that there was, there was fights that used to break out because they were so territorial about their oysters back in the day. Kakenzie, the other side of the Forth, a fight broke out there and it spilled... On you know, onto the boats all the way back to the other side of the Forth in New Haven, and just mass brawls. People were like hitting folk with oars and stuff like that, and like oh my God. something like a hundred, a hundred and fifty people were arrested. <laughs> so you just get some sense of how important it was yeah. in society back then. They were a poor man's food originally. They weren't a luxury thing at all. Um, if you 
didn't have enough beef, then you would bulk it out with oysters in your recipe, and uh, you'd actually you could actually pay the rent with oysters in some cases. You know, there, there's all sorts of cultural history here that we've kind of lost sight of uh, altogether. We're going to hear a little bit now about this um, deep project that Bill's been working on. We embarked on this journey of developing. Uh, oyster restoration in the Dornoch Firth. Uh, and the great thing is um, that if we can uh, restore oysters there, we don't just have a biodiversity gain. The actual filtration capacity of the oysters are able to account for the remnants of the organic uh, components of the barley that come out of their discharge uh, in, in the whiskey process. So there's a, there's a nature-based solution to uh, cleaning up the effluent from the site. They first started off by um, starting to build an anaerobic digestion plant, which came online in 2017. And what that does is it acts like a huge cow stomach. So if you imagine the distillation process takes barley into, into it, uh, and then you, you, f- you ferment, partially ferment that, and you, um, you turn that into uh, alcohol, but you've got some organic remains of that barley at the end of it. Um, and you can now, nowadays you can take that into the um, anaerobic digestion plant and you can digest it down like you can do in a, in a huge cow stomach. And it produces biogas um, and that biogas can be used to fuel the stills. So, so there's, a, there's a, a circular economy thing going on there. There's a, there's a, a virtuous circle. Part of the waste, in fact, 95% of the what we call the chemical oxygen demand that comes out of that process is taken up by that anaerobic digestion now. Uh, but that final 5% of what was left was what we got really interested in because oysters are amazing filter feeders. You know, one oyster can filter 200 litres uh, a day. And um, if you restore an oyster bed, the size of which used to be in the Dornoch Firth, we think that's 4 million oysters and 40 hectares of habitat. If that's the case, then the filtration capacity of that is enormous and it far exceeds the remains of that barley and the discharge that comes out the pipe. So what we're, what we're trying to do here is, is develop this restoration um, so that uh, we have this incredible nature-based solution, that the, the restoration of the oysters provides the biodiversity and the habitat and the structure, but it also takes up, filters the water and, and deposits that as sediments underneath the reef. There you go. So that's a very different use for the oysters then. You know, we're no longer going to be fishing and eating them, but actually using them for their sort of biological abilities to filter this water in conjunction with another brilliant Scottish industry. Yeah, it's it's so good. It just makes perfect sense, really, mm. um, just to, to tap into this. So that's, that's sort of nice. It's quite poignant and quite touching that this distillery is you know, doing something beyond just the profit motive. Mm. You know, they're looking at, you know, their responsibility. They're looking at like stewardship as well. So I was Mm. really like sort of struck by this idea. Um, And I went to chat to Hamish Torrey, who's their director of corporate social responsibility to hear a little bit more about it. 20,000 oysters will now be sitting happily at the seabed of the Doran Firth on test reefs. And the vision is to expand that to 200,000 oysters and then uh, hopefully on to 4 million. And with that, you get a sustainable oyster reef which will last for generations. So it's about long-term thinking, making a positive impact on the environment, but as it were, taking an active intervention. There's a difference between, say, conservation and restoration. 
Conserving is leaving things as they are. Restoration is actually going back to what you might call a past state and correcting what man took away all those hundreds of years ago. So we're very excited about the project and uh, working closely with Harriet Watt has been very rewarding. And there's one phrase I use often in this is that these sort of partnerships are what you might call triple helix partnerships, where you're partnering with the government, who is the regulator, of course, uh, a business like ourselves, which has an objective and a need, and and an institution like Harriet Watt, who has uh, an an ambition to pioneer research into new areas of, of science. So in a way, we're doing a small exemplar, if you like, of a bigger a much bigger idea. It's unusual for a whiskey company to to partner in this way, but because we need our distillery to be happy and successful and prosperous and employing people in the remote parts of the Highlands for the next 100 years, all these things bring us to want to collaborate with uh, real experts in their field. We've benefited right at our doorstep, and it's our responsibility to maintain the beauty and the biodiversity and enhance the biodiversity of the Dornoch Firth for generations to come. I'm really struck by the emphasis there on collaboration outside of the academic sphere. You know, he was mentioning this sort of triple helix collaboration between industry, academia and policymakers and government. Um, it's so it's so important that academic research is able to actually impact the outside world and that it's not just, you know, research for research's sake. And this is a really wonderful example of those three sort of stakeholders, I suppose, collaborating in such a fantastic way. Yeah, and it, and it ties into other academics that we'll be speaking to and have spoken to for this series. You know, there's so much work going on at Harriet Watt to not only drive pioneering research, but to bring that research out into the world and find an application for it. And this is just a classic example of the academics working hand in glove with a business and, you know, a governmental conservation society as well. Mm. It's great. A lot of people have this idea that academia exists in a bubble and this just absolutely flies in the face of that and shows that it doesn't have to if you think about things creatively. It's it's fascinating. Exactly. And what's really interesting about that is that the the impact of partnering with academia, I think, has given them that long term vision that I that in my experience, industry, because it is obviously driven by profit in order to exist, that is sometimes lacking, I think, in industry. But it was so it's brilliant to hear them talking about, you know, their vision for the next hundred years and their place in society and, you know, being an employer in that region. I think the side that academia is bringing apart from the research expertise is that long-term thinking because academia is lucky enough not to have those sort of time pressures and financial pressures in the same way. And it's not just, yeah, you're seeing these examples from the business world here of talking about, you know, responsibility. And actually you've now got... ESG, so environmental, social governance being a real buzzword in the world of finance Mm. right now and really what could possibly fund the measures that we take to solve climate change and you've got people working in CSR now so whose job it is to actually think beyond the profit motives so it's yeah. it's it's funny how academics and academia have really driven these changes if you will it is i mean one's instinct would be to say that the doing the right thing in this instance um would come at a cost to profit but actually i think what we're seeing certainly in the last few years is that consumers 
really care about this stuff and they will spend accordingly. So if they're seeing that corporations are being more socially responsible and environmentally responsible, they'll make purchasing choices accordingly. Um, So it's not just something that comes at a cost to the industry, but actually it can, you know, positively affect their bottom line as well. You can have a dram and know that your dram might be doing a bit of good as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a happy news story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watts School of Energy, Geoscience, Infrastructure and Society in a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university is giving them new and brilliant opportunities out in the real world. Here's an alumnus who saw an opportunity to further her interest in flood management after studying at the university. I am Dr Lindsay Mason-McLean. I work as a senior flood risk policy officer at SEPA and I've worked there since 2017. So I completed my undergrad in sustainable environmental management at Scottish Agricultural College and then I went on to do my doctorate at Harriet Watt. In my undergrad I developed an interest in catchment management. I'd done my dissertation on flood risk management in the River Clyde and you know that's where my interest kind of grew from from there and I decided that I wanted to work in that sector as well because I thought there's always going to to be floods and with climate change it's you know that there will always be a job there if I'm quite honest and Herit Watt offered an opportunity to become an expert in a very specific area of flood risk management. It involved not only field work and data skills and data analysis, but also understanding policy. And that, you know, in itself was very useful for me getting into SEPA and doing my current job. The part of the job that I enjoy the most is that I feel that I'm at the cutting edge of change in flood risk management in Scotland and that that's what policy development is about. So I would encourage anyone that wants to find out more about student life at Harriet Watt or more about research or becoming a PhD student like I did, then go to the website at hw.ac.uk. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Harriet Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from Bill Sanderson about his department's partnership with whiskey distillery Glen Morangie. Still to come, building climate resilient cities for the future and the possibility nature-based solutions brings for fighting climate change. So my research looks at the impact of hydro hazards, that's floods and droughts, on society and on the environment. And it looks at how these might change in the future with climate change. And the importance of this is so that we can continue to live with the great standard of life that we tend to enjoy within the global north and that we should be able to facilitate across the globe for everybody. I spoke to Lindsay Beavers, who is a professor of water management at Heriot Watt University. As I was at university, there were a number of really big floods that hit Um, the UK in particular, 1995, 1999. And there was one in particular at the the end of my first year, so about 1994, and significantly impacted Glasgow, where I was studying. 
And that made me realize just how devastating floods can be. And I think that that's often what brings people to start looking into this area is personal experience and, and what it means to people to be flooded. And so from that, my research kind of developed. I, I took on a PhD looking at not just water, but what also moves with water, which was sediment. And by that, I mean mud and rocks and how that moves through the system. And from that, I think it's a natural progression to start looking at what that means for the for ecology, because it's all linked. So what happens within a river is really important for what happens when um, the river goes out of bank and starts affecting properties, but also how it impacts the environment and ecology on which we all absolutely rely on, if you like. If we know that these things are coming, then we can prepare for them. And that's, that's the component of climate change adaptation, which is often what you see in the news. Now, there's been a big focus in the news about something called climate change mitigation, and this is all about the zero emissions targets. But we saw the UK government being advised by the Climate Change Adaptation Group, which is a, an independent group that advises government this year, the CCRA, so the Climate Change Risk Report, came out and said that we are not ready. And in fact, in the last five years, we've got less ready, if that's even possible, to adapt to climate change. So we need to remember that we can't just focus on the mitigation, so the, the race to net zero. We have to also focus on adaptation, on how we recognise that this is already happening and build in ways to manage that going forward. That's a really interesting distinction. And I think it's so true that we have tended to focus on, you know, reducing emissions so that climate change doesn't get any worse tomorrow. But it definitely takes an element of kind of acceptance that I think is less well shared within communities. You know, that climate change is happening now and we will have to adapt, certainly within our lifetimes, even within the next, you know, three to five years to adapt to the effects of a changing climate now. Yeah, and our built environments have changed so profoundly. So really, we yeah. need to adapt our built environments and create cities that can respond and adapt to these sort of flood extremes, you know, and we've seen so many of them recently. Yeah. But really, you know, we, we need to change the cities right now. Exactly. And it, I suppose it's not just enjoy the standard of living, but it's have kind of security in that, isn't it? You know, you're talking about adapting our cities it's not just the new cities that we're building the new houses the new infrastructure that has to be resilient to the climate but we're going to have to sort of retrofit a lot of existing buildings and infrastructure in cities in order for it to be more resilient to climate change yeah exactly and let's just have a listen to this next clip from Lindsay because i think that feeds in well to what you've just said you need to look at different scales for both droughts and floods and by that i mean within flooding you can look at protecting individual houses, and that can be from property level protection. So putting in non-return valves so that the water doesn't come up the toilet or out the bath or in through the door. There are much broader scale methods, which are things like building in ways to hold the water back upstream. So large scale dams 
There's also the opportunity to work with nature. So the, this is things like planting more trees upstream in the river because that absorbs the water, it intercepts the rain, and then through the root structures allows the water to percolate or to move through the soil and into the groundwater. And if we can do that, you can flatten out the peak of the river. So the water is less likely to go over bank. Now, nature-based solutions such as that, if you put all of those things in, you are naturally slowing down the river in a way that it used to slow down before we started putting in lots of pavements and lots of roads. If we're looking at the lower end of the spectrum, by that I mean droughts, that is also about holding water in the catchment, in the river basin, four times when you might need it. It's about farmers potentially having on-site little reservoirs which they hold so they can use the water when they need to for their crops. It's also about growing trees or having trees alongside rivers for the shading aspect so you lose less through evaporation, for example, but you also keep the water cooler for the ecology. So there's lots of different ways that we can change and adapt the way that we currently use water. There you go. So it's it's crucial work that she's doing. It is really sort of at the cutting edge of how we respond to the adverse and extreme events that climate change has caused. And one of the things I learned about while I was researching this is as the temperature of the earth rises, it causes more absorption of water in the clouds. So, you know, there, there is a direct link here between rainfall and flooding and climate change. Yeah, definitely. But this is why I think nature-based solutions is so clever, because a lot of the solutions that were mentioned are things like, you know, planting more trees, um, sort of natural barriers and dams in the way to slow the, the river flow. Those are kind of tried and tested solutions, right? You know, nature has kind of self-regulated in this way. It's a very elegant solution. Yeah, I mean, the, the answers exist already. They pre-exist. We need to just yeah. think cleverly about how we respond. I asked Lindsay to explain the importance of working in a field such as hers. I mean, it is a great department, clearly, the Civil Engineering and the School of Geosciences. So they're first in Scotland, fourth in the UK for civil engineering, and they're ranked top in the UK's top 20 as well. Mm. They are clearly leading the way, but I also wanted to find out, you know, what it feels like to work in such a crucial and important field. The beauty of civil engineering was its breadth and its ability to allow me to move in those directions. Hydraulic engineering um, offers so many opportunities and ability to work interdisciplinary because for me, that's the exciting thing, to be able to talk to different disciplines, bring things together and look at potential future solutions. That is the challenge and that is what's really exciting. Historically, what we've done in our society is we've kind of begrudgingly asked what's the minimum we can do to sort of to offset the impact of something. Bill Sanderson, Professor Bill Sanderson, talked to me about his hopes for the future and the importance of nature-based solutions. I think now we're seeing a social response now. I think we're seeing industry responding. And I think that means that increasingly uh, we're going to see people stepping up. Because very often the nature-based solutions aren't 
incredibly expensive or taxing. They just require the, uh, the will to do it. It's an exciting, but also really um, open area of research. There's plenty to be done and there's lots and lots that you could look at going forward. So please come and join us. We have heard so much from oyster restoration to adapting our cities to cope with extreme weather events. The thing I've taken from this is just, there is a lot happening that gives us hope, you know, to adapt, to change, to mitigate. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I feel so much more hopeful about the future hearing about these types of solutions. And I think the fact that they are nature-based, it does give me reassurance that they will work. I don't know why I trust nature more than I trust engineers, but I feel like looking to nature, these are tried and tested solutions. We already know the, the mechanisms and how it's all going to work. We just actually have to have to implement them now. It's inspiring to hear. It is. Thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk. 